Hello, welcome to the Collaborative Inquiries podcast. This podcast comes to you as part of the Collaborative Inquiries in Christian Theological Anthropology project funded by the John Templeton Foundation and Villanova University. This podcast series will introduce you, the listeners, to the Collaborative Inquiries project fellows and mentors, as well as other established scholars whose research deals with topics such as human nature, virtues and vices, economics, race, disability, memory, human psychology, sin, and grace. We hope that they will be illuminating. Welcome to Episode 5 of the Collaborative Inquiries Podcast. My name is Dylan Belton, and I am your host for today. Our guest for today's podcast is Dr. Paul Schurz. Dr. Schurz is currently a research fellow for the Collaborative Inquiries Project. He is also Associate Professor of Moral Theology at the Catholic University of America, where he teaches courses in theological ethics, as well as bioethics and healthcare ethics for nurses. He began his academic career in the sciences, in fact. After completing a BA at UC Berkeley and a PhD in genetics at Harvard University, he conducted research in the genetics of embryonic development. However, he eventually shifted disciplines and decided to investigate the theological and ethical implications of biomedical research. Dr. Schurz subsequently received a PhD in moral theology from the University of Notre Dame. His research now examines the ethics of genetic research, moral formation in science, the ethical effects of technology, and the role of risk in contemporary culture. His first book, Science and Christian Ethics, published by Cambridge University Press in 2019, draws on his dual training to examine the moral formation of scientists. We spend a good deal of our time discussing this very interesting text, which has a unique take on the relation between science and theology. We also discuss his current project, which examines the quantitative understanding of risk central to social arenas like genetics, finance, and social media. This current project draws on social and biological science to develop a theological anthropology addressing ethical implications of risk analysis in both individual decisions and social governance. We hope you enjoy this discussion. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dylan. It's great to be here. So, you know, as usual with these podcasts, we, we begin with some autobiographical material. So let's begin there. And, you know, you have a really interesting story. You were a practicing scientist, then you became a moral theologian, and now you work at the interface between science and theology. So I'd love to hear more about your background, you know, what you studied in the sciences, and eventually how you made the transition to theology. So give it a go. Tell us what you think is important. Great. Yeah. So I started out, uh, went into undergrad, actually interested in computer science, which plays a role in my current project. But taking a broad sweep of classes, I had to take a lot of general science kind of engagements, and I got really interested in biology. Biology, chemistry, they were fascinating. So right from undergrad, I started working in labs, uh, doing developmental biology, actually, working with embryos, going into the mouse lab, looking at the nervous system of developing mice did that for about two years, and that convinced me that my future lay in science. So I went to graduate school, went, went to Harvard, aiming to do developmental biology, and there again, I focused on limb development. So 
specifically on the genetics of how the limb forms, how you know how many fingers to have, how big the limbs should be. So I worked in chickens and also in mice, did a lot of research there. And it was a, it was a really exciting time. I enjoyed being in the lab. I enjoyed doing microsurgeries, just kind of the skills of science, the kind of hands-on technical engagement with seeing how living things grow, develop, how they change. And uh, yeah, at that point, I decided to go and continue on and do a postdoc. Already, I was kind of seeing some kind of concerns about, you know, what does my ultimate future in science look like as I finished up my doctoral career? And then I started a postdoc working in zebrafish, zebrafish genetics, again, de uh, developmental biology. Uh, this time, I was looking at heart valves. So one of the major congenital defects that people have are heart valve defects. And a lot of people have heart valve replacement. So there's a lot of focus on the genetics of what causes heart valves to go bad either right away or later in life. And zebrafishes seemed like it would be a really handy model to do this. So I spent I'm, a long time. I'm trying to think of the relationship to zebrafish hearts and human hearts. <laughs> yes. I mean, actually, it's the same all through vertebrates. It's like the same genetic programs mm. make all the different organs. So it's pretty conserved. You know, there's there's technical differences. I did discover in my work that there does seem to be some quite major differences in exactly how cells move in uh, valve development at the at early stages. But the nice thing about zebrafish is that they are transparent, so you can do high speed video imaging, and you can also tag places where certain genes are on. You can tag certain kinds of tissue types. And so you get some beautiful video images of the heart developing over time. So, I mean, this sounds wonderful and noble and uh, important work. So what brought on the crisis? I don't even know if it was a crisis in your career. I mean, how did you get from there to transitioning to moral theology? Yeah, so the transition, I mean, this is always something that I still go back and look at and like, uh, you know, okay, so what exactly did cause that change? You know, life, life happens and things develop over many years. So I will tell you a narrative. I'm not sure it's the only narrative that could be told. But um, yeah, from, from early on, so it, there's a couple of different streams. So from very early on, I was, I was always interested in a quite broad sweep of academic areas. Even from undergrad, I was doing a lot of, uh, took a lot of classes in classics, um, classical philosophy. I was very interested in philosophy, very interested in the ethics of, of, as things were going on. And, and this continued throughout graduate school. Uh, I don't know if you know the history, but with genetics and bioethics, the early 2000s were a big time of kind of ethical ferment, especially around developmental biology. As continuing gene editing technologies were developing, the genome was, you know, coming to into right. its fullness, embryonic stem cells. So there were all of these really interesting ethical issues to dive into that you know, on the side, I was reading the religious debates and saying, whoa, those are really interesting things to engage in. Right. So this ongoing on the one side, interest in these kind of philosophical problems of genetics and developmental biology. On the other hand, I was getting, you know, you see how the sausage of science is made, right? And uh, you get to see what does the career path of the scientist look like. And what it in fact looks like is you do a lot of great hands-on work at the bench uh, during your 
undergraduate, graduate, even your postdoc career. But once you get your own lab, basically you no longer have time to be in actually doing experiments, working at the bench, working with animals, right? Really engaged in that way. You become the manager of a lab. Now this doesn't happen to everyone. And if you, especially if you go back to, you know, somebody who's very senior, there's some people who've stayed in the lab um, from like a different generation. But really, once you get your own lab, your main focus is on writing grants, desperately writing grants after grant after grant, trying to get them because the pay, pay line and for a lot of the NIH grants, it's under 20% of grants get funded. So, um, and the science is expensive. So you're not, it's, and then you're, you're managing over your kind of grad students and postdocs, having meeting once a week, once a month with them, right, to kind of see what's going on. And just the stress of that, the burnout that I kept seeing amongst the young faculty who are just kind of hating life. And even once you get to mid, mid-career faculty, you finally make it. But you're still just writing grant because the pressure just never lets up because you still have to keep things funded. Yeah, that was another thing that just that kind of picture of what would the life look like just it was it was uh, quite dispiriting at that at that moment. And so I think that one is like leading to some questions about, okay, so what are we doing here Um, to get the grants funded? You frequently had to take on a narrower and narrower kind of focus on what you could do in the lab. Yeah. So that's very interesting because as someone who doesn't practice I'm not a practicing scientist. We might, for those of us who don't practice science, you might have an overly kind of romantic notion of what happens with the scientists or what's going on with the practice of science. So I don't think we really think too much about the nitty gritty or the day-to-day practice and all these background issues. And, we're, and, then, it, and then it starts sounding a little kind of like, I don't know, mundane or less romantic. What I'm trying to get at you basically is get you to your first book. because. Yeah. Well, let me ask this. Why did you transition moral theology? I mean, why didn't you go to just like moral philosophy? Or why didn't you go into the ethics of biology or something like this? Why, what was the transition to moral theology? So moral theology, I think, uh, well, because faith was, all, has been very important to me for a long time. And the issues in science and religion were the ones which really kind of struck me the, the deepest, right? And I think on the on the other side, right, uh, one of my influences in making the switch, the thing which I started thinking about is Alistair McIntyre, right? So his focus on virtue, right? Who are we becoming? This question. That was one of the influences that made me start looking at like, okay, so what is science training people to become? what kind of subjectivity, what kinds of dispositions is this model of doing science training people in? So if you look at later McIntyre, this is all, you know, kind of, if you're setting in an ideal for what you want to become, you have to have your ultimate telos in mind, right? Who should I become? And it's hard to think of, I at least had a hard time thinking of how to describe those questions without taking into account theology, right? These are like the ultimate, the ultimate teloi or something. Exactly, exactly, mm-hmm. right? So yes, I mean, science is going to be ordered towards the, this worldly, right? Towards creation, towards the temporal and in, in what you're investigating. But how do you order that towards the eternal and use that, those kinds of investigations 
to to serve that that ultimate end. So that that's kind of why I chose theology rather than philosophy. I see. Yeah. So you ended up at Notre Dame, and you studied under Jerry McKenney, I believe. And that's I mean, what, I'm I'm interested though what it was like going back to grad school though after all all of this. Well, it was not only that you, I had to go back to the beginning of a PhD program. So remember, this is theology, right? And this is where I knew, as, oh, this is really dumb to go to theology rather than philosophy. Because <laughs> with theology, you have to get the master's degree right, first. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I was going back to master's yeah. classes after, you know, okay, yeah. I'm on, this, on the step of actually going and getting a, a faculty job. Um, so yeah, so that was quite a change going back and like, okay, I'm writing, you know, 10 page papers and reading all this right. stuff. Yeah. I mean, ultimately after like two months of getting used to it, like it was, it was so much fun getting in and diving. Yeah. Into yeah. I wondered, you know, if I, if you do a first PhD, you know, it's the first time and you, there's always these dangers that you, I don't know, you work too much, you stress out so much. I wonder if you do a second PhD, you don't have those same kind of... You have some perspective, you know, and I wonder if it's just much more pleasant doing it a second time around, you know. Ultimately, it was. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is that a, um, a science PhD is very different from a humanities or a theology yeah, PhD, right? Because courses don't matter in a, in a biology. I mean, you do them, you have to learn some stuff, but all that matters is what you're learning in the, in the lab. It's really much more of a craft practice. Right. Right. Yeah. You're, you're apprenticing, basically, throughout your graduate career. And you do that a little bit in the, you know, you, you want, you try to make the doctoral experience like that, an apprenticeship in a certain way. But still, a lot of it, you're learning details in the classroom, you're learning intellectual stuff, you're off on your own reading and things. It's not the yeah. same kind of communal experience as in right. science. Right. Okay, so, so so your first book was Science and Christian Ethics, and you've already touched on what I was going to first ask you, and that has to do with the approach you have to science and theology. So I, I love the book, by the way. It was really a totally unique perspective um, that I've read from people in theology dealing with science. And as far as I, I mean, let me just say what I thought was unique, and you've already kind of touched upon it. Instead of thinking of like where the conflict lies, so to speak, at the level of propositional claims and, you know, is this compatible, is this Christian doctrine compatible with that and whatnot, you sort of bracketed that out and you just said, look, let's look at what happens in the actual day-to-day -day practice of science and the kind of character formation that takes place there. Plus, we have to think about science now, not just science in the abstract, but what you call entrepreneurial science. And then you do come around, though, to say that there is a kind of conflict, and it's a different kind of conflict, you know. Anyways, I'm really interested in this notion of science's character formation, and then also this notion of entrepreneurial science. Right. So it is very different than what else is out there. And that's because that's the questions I wanted to have answered when I was in the lab, right? This question of, as I said, how do I do science well as a Christian, right? What is and what are the challenges towards doing science well? I wanted to get into the day to day nitty gritty of what are the ethical challenges that a scientist is facing. And these are rarely the ones of, well, am, am I going to become a eugenicist? Am I going to write an equation that rejects God or something like that? You know, that's much more likely to have in, happen in like a popular press kind of depiction of science. 
And I think it's important to look at those propositional thing and there's tons of good work and I draw on it and I do it myself and some things. Mm -hmm. But what I was interested in, what happens day to day? What is the challenge for the Christian scientist? The scientist who is a Christian, let me just frame it that way. Um, <laughs> that's always a difficult descriptive ask. Um, what, what, is the, what, what are the challenges in, in the lab day to day? And so, yeah, so for me, I'm very much shaped kind of by this theory of practices, right? Coming out of McIntyre, also shaped by people like Pierre Bourdieu and Michel Foucault and, and these kinds of focus on day-to-day -day practice, how it shapes us. And so that's, that's what I wanted to look at. And what I was particularly zeroing in on is the things that I was seeing when I was in the lab is A, this pressure for grants that I was talking about, B, which was not so much a pressure in my labs, but I saw it in a lot of other labs in faculty who mentored me who are pushing back against it, is this desire for patents to market your knowledge and to do work which was marketable. Right. So to focus on the market and also anybody who does work in a la in a field will be able to point out other groups where, or people that they think do work too fast. Right. So this question of the pressures causing sloppy science or science that's not up to quite the quality or the kind of level of, you know, search for the truth that you would want. Right. And that concern blossomed in the years after I left science in terms of uh, the reproducibility crisis. It became obvious that a lot of people were doing work too fast, too sloppily. And a lot of the literature that's published is not as reliable as we would want it to be. When I got into graduate school in theology and I started to actually look at a lot more kind of science studies, history of science discussions, along with the kind of virtue discussions, I started to see this, to describe the history of science in, uh, in a certain perspective where there was a change that occurred around 1980 that made scientists try to become entrepreneurial. Uh, so back, if you go back, before that, in the 1940s, 1950s, these kind, this, that era, there is this almost ascetic ideal of a scientist. There's this famous story of Einstein rejecting a job offer at, I think it was Caltech, but because they were going to pay him too much money, he was, he was said, no, no, that's, that's ridiculous. You would pay me that much. That would kind of be almost uh, disgraceful for a scientist to take that much money. There were a lot of institutions which wouldn't allow their faculty to patent thing, to patent inventions or patent discoveries. Right? So there was a, a push against the, making science seem like a commercial activity. In the 1970s, there was a shift that occurred. A, you had on the one hand the, the growth of the biotech industry. Right. So there was this seemed like there would be a lot of money that could be made in some of this, these genetic discoveries that were emerging. But on the other hand, you also had policymakers who said, look, what does the U.S. have? Right. We're falling behind Germany and Japan in production and being able to build factories and cars and things like that. But we do have our universities and we have a huge science infrastructure. Maybe we can use that to drive our economy. Right? And so in the tech field, in science, 
we have used that right to to create these huge pharmaceutical corporations and these huge technology corporations and, it, and it's been somewhat successful but at the same time you've changed the role of the scientist especially the academic scientist when you do that now universities expect scientists to be seeking things like patents, to be starting their own corporations, right? You have a lot of people at the top universities who have their own their academic lab, but they also have different startup labs, different startup companies happening at the same time. And I think that's where you see, okay, you're looking at research not only to discover the truth, but also to make things marketable. Right. So there is this push towards um, what I think is, is somewhat of a conflict of interest to kind of make research marketable. At the same time, everyone be started to be judged by the standards of industry, which is kind of a short turnaround. You need to get grants. You need to be able to have discoveries being made in a really fast time window. Right. So you didn't allow people as much time to kind of allow their discoveries to go over time. Uh, they had to grants are on a three year, maybe at most five year cycle, which really sped up things. So this kind of competition forces the scientists to behave somewhat like the business entrepreneur, to be always looking for those business opportunities in research and also looking for how to monetize their research, either through getting startup capital or through getting grants as quickly as possible. Yeah, so this is so interesting, this. I, I must say, I, 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 I didn't really know much about this aspect of science now. So this part of your text was, was really illuminating. Um, I know you call it a new moral ideal at some point, the, the entrepreneurial ideal. So that's like your theory of, the practice of science, what entrepreneurial science is, what the entrepreneurial scientist is, is as moral ideal, let's say, um, slash businessman as well, or woman. Uh, where is where is the conflict with theology coming? That's, um, how do we get there, you know? Okay, yes. How do we get to the conflict with theology? All right, so, well, can I make two, uh, two caveats first, right? Of course, of course. Yes, okay. You can make as many caveats as you want. Yes, right, and I make them in the book, but I just want to make them for the listeners, right? So first, I'm not saying that science was pristine before 1980 and then became, you know, problematic. Mm. They're, they're, you know... Every funding model of science has its issues, right? Before, you know, there was problems of eugenics 100 years ago. There were problems of military funding 75 years ago, right? So every, every era of science has its own kind of issue, institutional issues to take care of. I say this is just the one we have today, right? So it's not kind of an ideal that we've, we've, we've had a fall. Certain ethical problems have become, have become important. And uh, a, I also take you say there's kind of there is there has been a sort of institutional shift as well that's tied to economic changes and that's I think that's super important right exactly right I mean even if you look at the business side of things that's my second caveat my second caveat is also not that science should never mix with business there have been lots of times where big corporations have done really good science right so Bell Labs if you look back to some of the Kaiser Wilhelm institutes in Germany. Right there, the cartels would would the the German business cartels would funded a lot of great research back in the nineteen twenties. 
So what was, what was different was this institutional structure. A lot of times with those monopoly corporations, it was like, okay, we're going to give you some money and we kind of want you to look at these issues that, that we're interested in, but we're going to give you a lot of freedom on how you do that. We're going to give you a longer time window um, and, uh, and, we're not, and we're also going to give you a lot of free time, you know, 20% free time to just do whatever kind of research you want there. So even in those business management, there was a lot more hands-off and not trying to make the scientist act as an entrepreneur. There was a manager who was going to come in and kind of manage, canalize the scientists towards the institutional ends, but give them a lot of freedom to act as scientists. Whereas now, if you see somebody like Google, how they run their kind of research labs, I saw in one article that they were saying they encourage their researchers to think if whether their research can be marketed within five years, and if not, to cut the research project. So it's a very different thing. You think of the transistor. Transistor discovered in the late 1940s far too expensive to really do anything. And it was, it's only like the space program bought a couple of them right through the 1950s. But the Bell Labs kept this research thing going until it became later the computer industry. Yes. Okay. So those are my two caveats. Okay. Those are really, those are really great caveats. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So there's two theological problems. One is what is the end of science? Right. So the scientist is serving this greater end, which is understanding the truth of creation, understanding the truth of creation th through the tools of science, through the kind of independent means that the different disciplines autonomously have to, to seek out this truth of the world. What happens when that gets transformed and primarily is aimed at business ends is that you lose that search for truth, which kind of gave science a tie to theology, right? A tie to our ultimate end, right? You are seeing God in creation in a certain way by seeking the truth of creation. Right? So I think that's theologically important. I think the other thing it does is that by making ideas and also by making animals and aspects of creation you're, you're seeking to making them into patents, into marketable products. So you're, you're trying to figure out something. How do we, how do I create a mouse that I can sell? How do I use this mouse to create a drug to sell? And in some ways, like this is good because you're making medications, but it's also leading to a commodification of nature in a certain way. And that I tie into um, Pope Francis's discussion of the technocratic paradigm how entrepreneurial science shapes your view of the world into something that can be manipulated and ultimately sold for market uses. Now, I think there are some problems with science more broadly on this front. So, you go back to old romantic poetry, right? We murder to dissect, right? There's a way in which older kinds of sciences, dissection, you're already kind of objectifying, manipulating nature. Um, and I certainly experienced this, right? So story I tell in the book is my first day in the mouse lab as an undergraduate. What did they have me do? Well, the first thing they had me do was to participate in the mouse call. There was like 75 mice in the mouse colony, which they had to get rid of because 
right? They didn't need them. They didn't want to keep the mice on hand. It's a waste of resources. Like you don't, you don't want to cause pain to the mice. So, you know, I sat there and gassed cage after cage of mice to kill them, right? And so that shapes you that first day into seeing the mice as a research tool, right? So I think that's something they frequently did for people who had their first day, right? To kind of see, can you get into seeing your model organism as a research tool? Can you objectify it in that way so that you can actually use it effectively? Or are you always going to be squeamish about using mice or using chickens or whatever kind of research organism you have? So there's a certain way in which the process of science where you're killing things, cutting them up, dissecting them, slicing them into small pieces, you're already, it's, it's an objectifying aspect of how you're treating nature. I think entrepreneurial science takes that to the next level because you're not just trying to find out, cut it up and then put it back together. You're kind of cutting it up, figuring something out and selling it. Right, so so objectification and commodification. I mean, you wouldn't say those are intrinsic evils, right? But yeah, so I take you to be saying that all of this, though, is taking place, though, within a craft skill-like development that happens, which is then shaping your disposition, shaping your perception of creation. And that can be happening. It's not something you might be intentional about. It's just going to happen to you um, as, a pra- as, if you, as a practicing scientist. And then if you are a practicing scientist who is a Christian, then you might be saying to that person, now you might have some problems here if you're not careful. Right. It's shaping how you see the world. And yes, as you said, I wouldn't say that that's intrinsically evil. If you keep something in, in, in its place, it can be, yeah, in a, in a restricted sphere, it can be fine, right? You know, like we want the surgeon to objectify the person they're doing surgery on, it becomes more problematic when you just, you know, you see a doctor who treats every patient just in terms of kind of their molecular readout of, you know, what their statins is, things like that. Then you don't hear the story of the patient. Uh, in science, it's fine to, in the lab, think through particular molecular processes, per- particular organisms in, this, uh, in, the, in a kind of reductionist way. That's fine, but what Francis points to in Let Out to See is that we have a tendency to expand this to look at a lot of other kinds of uh, aspects of the world. And it's hard to step back from these kinds of automated form dispositions in, right. in how we see things. Right. So I guess that's why the language of paradigm is important there. It was a worldview. I know in your, in your current work, you talk a lot about worldview, and we'll come to that when it comes to the, the probabilistic risk analysis. Yeah, so, I, I mean, another aspect of your book, and maybe we can end here and then transition to your current research, is um, what to do about it, you know? It's very interesting there, too, because we can't change the structures or the, the institutions anytime soon, which means that scientists who are Christians need to become more like Stoics. <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's your position in a nutshell. Anyway, I'm just kind of kidding. But that is sort of what you're saying. Well, at least they could learn from Stoics, with Stoicism and, and techniques of the self or practices of the self. So anyway, so I don't, maybe if you could just um, riff on that a bit and see what you, mm. and say a bit about what you think the solution might be. Yes. No, no. So yeah, as you've noted, I, I am very heavily influenced by Stoicism. And I think... Current moral theology has a lot to learn from Stoicism, um, right? And uh, so what, 
the, what we've discovered, what, what a lot of research like Pierre Hadot, Michel Foucault have learned is what the Stoics did, right? So let's think about what, first, let me take a step back. So when Aristotle thinks about moral formation, he thinks a lot about practices. How are practices shaping us? McIntyre talks about the practices. So Aristotle talks about when you're born in a polis, whether you're born in a good polis or a bad one, with one with good or bad laws, it's going to have a huge effect on what kind of person you become. These early influences are going to shape you. The problems that always raises is, well, how do you go, if you assume that you're in a society that's somewhat malforming, right, kind of shapes you poorly, how do you change? How do you change from bad dispositions into good dispositions? There's something on the Aristotelian framework where, well, you just start choosing and making better choices, but, but there's, there's always this problem of how do you get to that step of making better choices? The Stoic thought, though, to go back to what I was, I was saying earlier, recent research over the past 40 years, started by Pierre Hadot, it kind of engaged in by Michel Foucault, have pointed out the role that practices of the self play. And here you can think of things like Christian devotional practices. This is a lot about thinking or mindfulness practices or cognitive behavioral therapy. It's a lot about looking at what are we thinking? How am I engaging the world? Am I doing it properly? Am I doing it in a Christian manner? Am I seeing God in the world? Am I seeing Christ in the other? What kinds of examination of conscience can I do at the end of the day to kind of see where I am acting poorly, where I am seeing things poorly? It's, it's these processes, these daily practices of, of self-formation, which the Stoics saw as helping us to see the world more correctly. Right. That is fundamentally what they're trying to help us to do, is to value different things in the world properly and act for the right ends in the world. Lots of these practices get brought into Christian spirituality through the monastic processes of late antiquity, uh, in late antique Egypt, where you have these kinds of practices of self being brought up and deployed to help people become more Christian, to make sure that they're fighting the seven deadly thoughts, eight deadly thoughts, whatever it might be. So, okay, so that's the kind of stoic background. So how does that apply to science? Well, if you see that the basic problem is that the entrepreneurs, or entrepreneurial scientist is getting an improper disposition, which is causing him or her to see the world poorly, right? To see the world at, and to see their practice as a space to make money, to commodify, to advance in their career, rather than as a space in which the goal is to seek truth so that one can glorify God by showing the rationality of creation or the beauty of creation. Then what you need to do is to reshape those problematic dispositions. And one way to do that is through these kinds of practices of the self, stepping back, saying, okay, how am I acting here? What is this fear of not getting this next grant? What is that doing to how I'm acting in the lab? What actually would be so bad about not getting the next grant, right? And, and trying to change one's actions by changing how one sees the world and one's activities in the world.
Right. So, and I, and I take it just as saying that, you know, ideally, again, um, that you could have the creation here of new sort of moral exemplars who then can start changing the actual institutions and practice of science itself. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very important, right? Yeah. So this isn't just, I mean, the, partially it's an end in itself, right? Yeah. So, you know, yeah. How scientists can act well and the, you know, be good scientists. Yeah. But also it's becoming the kind of people who can push back on some of the negative impact influences in science today. Because if you look at how people are thinking about managing the reproducibility crisis that we're having, right, it all becomes very procedural, right? All the solutions end up being, well, we're going to check their work more. We're going to check the statistics they're using. We're going to have more kind of analysis of try to dig into their lab notebooks to make sure that they're, they're doing the right thing. It's all very disciplinary which is just going to cause more burnout. You're not actually going to catch everything because it's easy to, you know, if, if you're a sloppy scientist, you're not, it's not going to appear that something has gone wrong in your notebooks, things like that. But what you actually need to do is change the people so that they act better for better ends. Well, let's hope you should start distributing your book around some science labs and at Google. And <laughs> Anyway, so look, Paul, I really want to get onto your current research project. So I know you have you have a book deal, as far as I understand, or, already in place. Do you have a title for the, the new book? Yes. Uh, the title is Tomorrow's Troubles, Risks, Anxiety, and Prudence in an Age of Algorithmic Governance. So yes, it is actually, yeah, it's a book deal. The book is actually coming out September 2022. So, oh, great. Congrats. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. No, very excited about it. And, um, oh gosh, that was really, that's a, you're working really fast because the, the previous book was 2019. So yeah, that's pretty amazing. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I mean, the, the previous book was, came out of my dissertation. And so I'd been, I've been see, doing yeah. the two things at the, at the simultaneously somewhat. So. Oh, I see. I see. I see. And the, oh. the, the collaborative inquiry grant has been very helpful in giving me the time to actually do the writing. Okay. Awesome. Great, great pitch there. <laughs> try, try. <laughs> okay so i am totally out of my league when it comes to probabilistic risk analysis stuff so i um from what i you've sent me and what i was and what i've heard you speak about at, at the workshop earlier this year or was it last year i couldn't have lost track now november november was last year good good lord okay so what is the major issue that you are trying to deal with here or what is let me maybe ask it this way what is probabilistic risk analysis, first of all, and why is it something new? And why did you feel like this is something that has to be addressed by theologians? So let me take a step back into why I got into this project in the first place, right? Why, is it, why did I get engaged in this question of risk? Well, it came out of two things. So first, this, this question of uh, looking at entrepreneurial science, one of the things that kept coming up about, well, what is an entrepreneur? Well, an entrepreneur is somebody who engages risk, right? You know, who embraces risk, starts businesses, kind of does this kind of thing. And so risk seemed very important in thinking through with this entrepreneurial science. Also, in terms of looking at how genetics was developing. So genetics, I don't know if you've looked at how much you engage that field, but a lot of what's happening in genetics is um, if you see people who get their 23andMe report on their health, 
right? It tells them what their increased relative risk of getting heart disease or Alzheimer's mm. is and things like that. So a lot of what genetics does now is to tell people what their risk of getting certain diseases is, mm. um, breast cancer, what have you. And so I was really interested in this because that's somewhat of a change from when I was starting out in the field back in the 1990s, where it was, we were into finding cures. Now it has become almost primarily about finding risk. So I was interested in this question of risk, right? And then as I dove a little bit further into investigating, okay, so what are people saying about risk? You start to discover how much of our world is really about statistical prediction of how people are going to behave, how markets are going to change, what are the possibilities of you know, certain kinds of outcome. So give a couple of examples, like financial markets are pretty much run on models of the probability of certain, certain stocks going up or down over the next period of time, right? So it's that kind of prediction. Genetics is now predicting the quantitative risk of getting certain diseases. We get on lots of medications like statins based on your risk for having heart attack. COVID was huge in this in that huge amounts of changes to society were done based on basically models of the risk of certain possibilities for disease spread. And last, think about social media, right? You receive your newsfeed based on what an algorithm thinks probabilistically. It predicts you will, will engage you more, right, and for longer. So, and given how much Amazon sends you ads based on the probability of that you're going to buy that product. We have this huge mathematical intellectual infrastructure that takes current data the past data and uses it to predict people's behavior or things in the world to give a statistical probability that one thing or another will happen. Mm. And that governs our life. So I thought it was important that moral theology kind of engage that. Right. So uh, yeah, I guess I, I maybe want to get you to say a bit more about what's quite unique about all of this, because, you know, again, I know you talk about, um, prudence as a virtue or, or classical accounts of of practical reasoning where you're dealing with contingent futures and we you know, we've always had to deal with possibilities of the future etc so what's so what's unique about this because i know you also want to say that risk analysis is the way you're talking about it now is something that's quite distinct and quite modern right right so if you think about how aquinas thought about prudence or aristotle how they thought about chance they thought that you couldn't have a science uh, of chance, basically. Chance was just going to be, you know, the, the classic example is someone digging in a field finds a buried treasure. That's chance, right? You, you had somebody buried the treasure there, somebody's digging in the field, those two causal streams intersect, leading to something that's completely unpredictable. Beginning in the 18th, 19th century, people started to see that, no, the world is probabilistic in a major way. It's not just that random things will intersect or you'll occasionally have something fail or something weird will happen. It's that every event is like the roll of a dice. 
that there are six probabilities, there are certain possibilities that can flow from, uh, from an event, and we can predict what those possibilities are, we can quantify them, and you can make your choices and judgments based on the probability and what the possible kind of uh, payoff of each of those uh, chances are. So where, again, I feel like there's something here that's not objectionable in and of itself, but when it spills over from its proper domain, I mean, at some point, I believe you use the language even of colonizing, such that risk analysis now becomes something like a worldview. And when it does this, then you feel like now we have a conflict with something, with certain Christian beliefs or certain Christians' understandings of the human being and the image and likeness of God. So perhaps you can talk a bit about that. You know, where, where, again, you know, where, when does it start become colonizing? And then where is the conflict right. with uh, Christian beliefs? Yeah. And so I think there were, like, it, it, there, there, there have been theological engagements with this in the past. I think two major sets. There was, um, if you go back into the 1960s, there was like utilitarianism, right? And that was a claim that we can look at the uh, kind of chance of outcomes and if the, and you can just use the chance of good outcomes to declare whether an action is good or bad. And that you could this this debate over whether the probability of a good outcome could make what we would generally think a bad action be a good action. So this was the kind of proportionalist controversy. I'm not looking at these questions of whether a good probability of good outcome can make murder okay, right? That's not what I'm, I'm engaged in. I'm looking at, yes, okay, you have what in general is a good action. You're trying to do things properly. But the danger is that as you become more and more trained in thinking probabilistically, and everyone is being trained in this way, like this is part of, even if you look at welfare programs, frequently they'll have responsibilization uh, components where this is about teaching people who are receiving the things from this program where they have to learn to think more like a homo economicus, right? To, to achieve their ends more responsibly and, and with think, seeking like in a kind of economic kind of rationality. People are starting to think about their relationship. There's some really interesting things about gamifying your relationship to kind of think more strategically about like relationships. People who are thinking about their relationships in terms of the probability using algorithms, see whether their probability that they're a good match, right? So these things are I'm coming a, more I'm, and more. What, so yeah. I'm, I'm about to get married in August. I should talk to my fiance about this. We should do some probabilistic risk analysis. <laughs> Some last minute risk analysis. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, sorry, I interrupted you. I just... Yeah, no, no. I th no, but you see this. Uh, you see this going on quite a bit. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, you can use it in any area of your life, really. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, as we start thinking about the world in this way, you start to think that you can. There, there's two problems that arise here. On the one hand, it increases your fear and your anxiety about the future. You start to think about all of the things that can go wrong. As you lay out like, okay, so when I think probabilistically about the future, I have to think, okay, what is the different combinations of outcomes that can occur? 
what is their likelihood, what is their chances of, uh, what are the chances of good things happening in each one. So you start seeing this total vision of the future, and you think that you can actually control the outcomes. You start to think that way, and it also gives you greater responsibility over optimizing your selection. And this drops a huge weight on the individual to think that they can control the future, because the future is ultimately out of your control. You can make the best kind of probabilistic choice that you can, and still you can have another prospect can, can happen, right? Or something totally random and new can emerge. It makes us think that we can predict and also have some control over the future, which I would say is, is very limited in how much control we actually do have over the future. So that's one of the, one of the aspects is it, it increases fear and anxiety over making the wrong choice. Um, and this is there's a lot of research on anticipatory regret here, where you have people who are just paralyzed by the fact that they can see that they have to make a choice between three different things, and they, can, they don't want to make that choice because they can see all the different possible outcomes, and they don't want to reject one set over an, to, to choose another. And the other thing is it misdescribes how our action occurs in relationship to God. It makes us try to trust ourselves rather than only in ourselves and think that we can control it rather than to having to admit that we can do our best. But ultimately, many of the outcomes are only in God's hands. Right? We have to ultimately trust in God's providence and seek to do what God wants us to do in that situation, which is, is sometimes going to be the thing that's most advantageous or probabilistic. But frequently, it will be also things that look like poor bets at the moment. Mm. So this, so let me put it this way. Your last text was kind of about, it was a doctrine of creation and recovering and thinking about how, uh, what practices can deform how we think about creation. This one seems to be more geared towards like providence. How, again, this way of being trained into thinking, which is something we might not even be attending to or thinking about explicitly, is actually disposing us to relate to God's providence in this particular kind of way. Yeah, that's a, I thank you for putting it in that way. Yes. No, I hadn't thought about the relationship between the two books that way. But yeah, I think the, the first one is about how do we see creation? Yeah, the other one, this one is about, yeah, providence. How do we see God's governance in the world and our relationship to that? Both very stoic, though. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so uh, you also talk a lot, though, about the image of God. In, the, in, in this work, or it's something that's concerning you there, because, you know, we've talked about the providence thing, I guess, a bit now, but you also focus on the way in which risk analysis is tied up with various structures of power and how it can get ab abused by certain actors, like you say, states or corporations. And that, I, as, I, as I understand you, is, is some, now you bring in the image of God there, because now you think we need to be asking questions about how risk analysis can damage how we think about others as subjects or others as created in the image and likeness of God. So maybe you could say a bit about that. Right, yeah, and I think the first part also has something to do with, I mean, all of this is about practical reason, and I'm mm. coming from a very Thomistic kind of vision of the, the image of God, or Augustinian vision of the image of God, which sees it as about our kind of reasoning and freely acting, right, 
always in relationship to God and others, right? So this is what, so, so the first part where I was talking about, about like always trusting in providence is about acting willing in, in relation to God. The second part has to do with how institutions have a tendency to try to kind of limit the individual's ability to freely choose and act and use their prudence, right? Because it's not only in individuals who are trying to gain control over the future. Institutions are trying to gain use probabilistic risk analysis to gain control over the future. Mm -hmm. And this is what things like, and, and they're trying to do that by shaping how individuals subject to them act. How does this happen? Well, social media algorithms try to shape what you see, predict your actions, and shape what you see so that your actions will be channeled in a certain way. There's also gambling programs that have algorithms that will let you win the exact amount of time to keep you playing, which will eventually get you addicted to the game, like undermining your ability to freely say, okay, I'm going to do this or not. Or, you know, video algorithms like, that are trying to optimize to keep you on the site as, as long as possible. Other kinds of institutional things, like I've been working a lot about how doctors are being shaped by their institutions to prescribe some risk-reducing medications because if they don't act in a certain way, their reimbursements will be downgraded. They won't re receive as much money if they don't try to control risk as much. So this is a way in which institutions are trying to shape doctors' actions, not allowing them to act with as much prudence, but trying to erase that kind of, of freedom. And this is something emerging out of my thoughts on Catholic social teaching. Right, Catholic social teaching thinks about institutions should give people space to use their prudence. That's what ideas of participation, subsidiarity are all about. I think the way that algorithms, certain kinds of tools of nudging are being used in contemporary society, it's instead being used in a way to undermine individual freedom, individual ability to use prudence to act wisely in the interests of the common good and direct them in a certain manner. Yeah, I, th I think one of the most controversial claims you make um, has to do with the, the demonic. I mean, I know people don't like to talk about that very much anymore, but you do make a claim about the demonic, and you don't mean it in the sense of, you know, actual demons doing the algorithms or something. I mean, maybe maybe you do think that, but I, it's not what you... <laughs> Let me just state what I understand you to be saying, is that there's a kind of evacuation of agency that's going on here, and you want to using um, Guardinia, I believe, right? Um, think about this in terms of the demonic. And you, you make a claim which I thought was really, really insightful and it really got me thinking about a kind of desire even maybe to have to let something like an algorithm or something else take over our agency in some ways. And maybe that's a consequence of the fact that we are totally overwhelmed by possibilities and the sense of the future. And there's a, maybe a desire now to like, yeah, hand our agency over. And is that, is that what you're calling the demonic <laughs> or? Uh... Right. Yeah. No. So this is a, as you said, this is an idea that I'm getting from Romana Guardini, who um, in the end of the modern world, uh, into the modern age, was discussing that bureaucracies, the way in which we are caught up into these large institutional structures where we can try to act, but 
we don't really know what the effect of our action is. And we can end up acting, thinking we're acting for a good, but in fact, the institution turns our action into an evil end, right, without our knowledge. Um, and this is what he calls the demonic, is this disconnect between the individual and acting for an end, right? And it's demonic, and I'm interpreting it because it's undermining that aspect of the image of God in which we are people who will, using our intellect to reach certain good ends. There's aspects of modern bureaucracy, modern institutions, which disconnect our ability to act from purposeful outcomes. And this is what I think you're also seeing in a lot of what's going on. So I use examples from social media or from internet gambling, drawing on um, the work of Natasha Dow Shul, which is, is brilliant. Um, and these are extreme, but you get people who are doing online gambling to get to a state of, of what they call like almost this nihilistic inability to even engage the world where they're just pressing buttons, right? That they get into a kind of flow state in which they're just totally sucked up into this kind of mindless pressing of buttons. And that's what they're seeking out the online gambling for. And this is a way in which kind of algorithms and systems are designed to, to sap the ability to act as the image of God. And yes, I think this is a broader aspect of a lot of uh, systems that we act in. And um, yeah, and, I, and drawing on Guardini, I think we can, we can describe that as demonic insofar as it undermines the image of God. And also it leads people to act for ends that they don't know what they are and frequently tend to be quite negative ends as a lot of the revelations of what comes out of Facebook, things like that right. appear. Hmm. So um, no, we, we probably should start trying to wrap it up now, but I, I wanted to make sure that, you know, like we did with the last text, we're not saying that like risk analysis is totally bad or anything like this. So it has, you know, if you frame it as becoming something more like a worldview or colonizing those aspects of our lives that it shouldn't, that implies that it has a proper place. So I'm wondering if you could maybe say something a bit more positive about risk analysis and where you think it has its proper place in our lives and institutions, et cetera, et cetera. No, yeah, I think risk analysis is totally essential, right? If you're planning some public program and you don't take you know, kind of advantage of the, you don't take account of risk, right? You're, you're, you're going to lead to a lot of harm. Um, I also have written about genetic technologies and how we really need really good precautionary risk analysis before we unleash these things on the world because they can have unintended consequences. And so, yes, I think where risk analysis is really helpful is in bringing to mind unintended consequences that come out of a mathematical analysis, but that we were just we would not be aware of otherwise. And I think for any kind of policy decision, they should be used in that framework. But at the same time, we frequently use risk analysis, say, oh, there's a risk of that. We must go and address that risk, right? Or stop the project or engage. We always have to know that ultimately, risk of analysis gives you information but you have to use your values and your knowledge of the greater situation, use your prudence to make the final decision, 
risk analysis is not going to give you the answer. Cost-benefit analysis cannot give you the answer. You have to use kind of the broader qualitative judgments of prudence. And I don't think you should use it in your, you, you shouldn't use a risk analysis to probabilistic analysis to decide whether you should get married. I think <laughs> there's very limited elements of how you should use it in your personal life. I think discernment yeah. is a much better way. I think of many of my best decisions, which on the uh, kind of risk side of things, no one would say, yeah, quit science, go to theology. That's a much safer kind of way to yeah. go. Well, you know, I mean, I'm I'm going to talk to my fiance after this, and I'll tell her that you said I should do a, do some kind of risk analysis. <laughs> well, I'll get some app. Um, and there must be some app out there for this. Um, my, you know, my life has just turned out in ways that I could never have ever imagined when I was young. So I, you know, I guess I'm just not prone towards risk analysis stuff myself. But, anyways, Paul, look, we're out of time. It was really great chatting to you. It was really insightful. Your work is really, really unique and very interesting. So I, I look forward to the next book when it's out to read, to read it in its published form. Great. Thank you very much. It was great to talk to you. All right. Bye. That's all for this episode. For more information about our project, Collaborative Inquiries in Christian Theological Anthropology, visit our website at theologyandscience.org. Thanks for listening.